Episode 27 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. To start your free 30-day trial and to get your free audiobook, head to audibletrial.com slash pilot the pilot and start your trial today. What is going on, Aviation and welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. My name is Justin, and I'm your host. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jim Kresek. Jim is a current private pilot and also aeronautical engineer. This episode kind of goes to the fact that you can be a pilot, but don't have to be a professional pilot. There are many other careers that you can enjoy and still be involved in the aviation industry and still have a chance to fly. Some of the things that Jim and I talk about are how Jim was the first pilot in his family, how Flight Simulator helped Jim decide to get his pilot license, how Jim's competitive drive fueled him to get his license done as fast as possible, what it was like being a collegiate athlete and flying at the same time, and how Jim took his private pilot checkride in just 51 hours. Aviation, thank you guys so much for all the support and feedback that I've got from this podcast. If you enjoy the podcast, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know via email, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. And if you want to support us, go to Patreon, patreon.com slash pilot. We're doing a Patreon-only giveaway where we're giving away a subscription to FlightAware and a subscription to ForeFlight. The only way to enter is by supporting us on Patreon, so please do that. We have a goal of getting 30 Patreon supporters by the end of the year and also 10,000 followers on Pilot the Pilot's Instagram. So please share the podcast, share the Instagram page, do everything you can to help us reach those goals. We've already reached our goal of getting 100 reviews on iTunes, which is just so crazy. Thank you guys so much. I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And without further ado, here's Jim Kresek. Hey, Jim, thanks for coming on the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Justin, thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate it. No problem. I'm glad that we can get this figured out. I know that um, we've been talking for a while and trying to get figured out and some <laughs> scheduling issues, but it's here. We can talk about your story, and I can't wait to talk to you, man. Yeah, absolutely. I'm really excited for it. Well, cool, man. So let's go ahead and get started, and let's get right into the episode. What made you want to get into aviation? Uh, you know, I, I kind of have to go back to when I was when I was little. My, my great-grandma lived in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And with my family being from Chicago, we would go down and, uh, well, we would go down and visit her, but it, it would have to be via plane to, you know, make it, you know, sensible. We don't want to go 24 hours in the car, you know. So, um, from a young age, whenever I flew down, I always seemed to have the, the window seat and I loved looking out and seeing all the different planes out there. And, um, I don't know, as, as I, as I kind of grew up a little bit, my parents got me some flight simulator video games and, and fighter jet games and all that. And, uh, um, I don't know. I, I I did that a lot on the computer. I never really thought it could be something that was like a, a career, you know, or something to do. And, you know, even having a private pilot's license, I never really thought that it would, it would be possible because I was so little, you know, I thought it was so far off. But um, but as I grew older, I started to realize, hey, you know, I'm getting to the age where, you know, this might be a, a possibility. Um, and, you know, it, it was kind of a, a weird chance that happened. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm the first person in my family to go um, be involved in anything, you know, pilot related. My grandpa was a um, a bombardier navigator. I can't recall what, what bomber model he was on, but you know, I'm the first pilot in my family. It's weird because you know, my dad's just a businessman and my mom, you know, works with my dad and in, in our, in our family business. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of a weird way how, how my whole, you know, training situation came about. I was actually, um, I just finished my freshman year of college and actually I'll back up a bit. My senior year of high school, I, I you know, I didn't really think about going into, into piloting at all. I thought about being an, you know, an engineer cause I was, I was good with math and science and, and things of that nature. Um, and we were going on actually a family vacation and I decided to download, you know, a flight simulator for my phone cause I hadn't played it in years. It was uh, on our old computer that we threw out and all that. Yeah. And I got it from my phone and you know, I started, I started doing that again, just on my phone, just kind of as a, as a joke, just, just kind of messing around. And then, um, after I, and this is after I'd already applied to a bunch of colleges and all that. And I was kind of set on where I wanted to go. And then later on in senior year, I was like, man, what if I actually, you know, wanted to pursue this as a, as a, um, career and you know i kind of had that hanging over my head going into freshman year and i, I always kept thinking about it i always kept um i actually upgraded and got fsx and i still kept tooling around on that and that just kind of added more fuel to the fire um and then the summer after my freshman year of college i actually um i i, I uh, dislocated my thumb i was in a cast for i think it was eight or nine weeks and that was not um not fun at all and that was like just as i was about to start the summer and you know start working at a, a restaurant in town just for some quick money and um you know, I couldn't work as a result of that because I was in the cast. And um, it was that time when I started looking into you know, flying schools and seeing what my options kind of were in my area in Chicago. And when I finally got the cast off, I was like, hey, you know, no one's going to hire me for, for, for three or four weeks for the rest of the summer. And, and so I was like, hey, maybe maybe now would be a good time to start, you know, the training. And it's weird because it's about the time that I got my cast off, um, 
one of the flight schools that I was following on Facebook actually posted a picture about how they just had a kid solo for the first time and he did it in like their quickest number of days and hours and whatever. And, you know, my, me being the competitive kind of person that I am, you know, my, <laughs> my parents both played college sports. I had played sports all my life. I was like, you know what? I have some time. Why not try and get the ball rolling here? But not only, not only get the ball rolling, but also kind of, you know, go for that record. Yeah. Um, beat that kid. <laughs> oh yeah. And, and it, and it was, it was kind of a, a weird, it, it was kind of weird how it all happened. You know, I, I, I came in on like a Sunday for my intro flight. And by, gosh, I think it was either a Friday or a Saturday, um, I, I had soloed, you know, flying twice a day and, and I got my medical, all that figured out like in two days and it all kind of happened so, so fast and so quick, but, um, but, but it was great the way that it kind of turned up and I actually ended up, I, I actually ended up getting that kid's record, which was great. I beat him by a day and a couple hours. So That's I'm glad awesome. I kind of added that on there too, you know, but, um, put that on your resume. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if, if, if anyone, if anyone really cares about yeah. it, but. But uh, it's kind of weird. So it was, it was, it was, it was strange too because for a while there, I, I think I mentioned my computer like breaking when I was in like middle school or something like that. I just lost for whatever reason. It was right about that time when I lost, you know, all the interest. And I was sort of started focusing a lot more on on sports and and actually I was a big Nike guy. I was really into shoes and wanted to, you know, work for Nike and design their new cleats and running shoes or whatever. And then I kind of so so I kind of strayed from the whole aviation path, but then I sort of found my way back along the way in high school and it was kind of weird or sorry in my freshman year of college. So it's kind of weird how it all ended up, but I'm glad I'm really glad it worked out the way it did. Cause I was able to, you know, meet a, a whole bunch of different people. I, I probably wouldn't have met along the way if I just sort of stuck to the whole engineering thing and didn't go into piloting. So definitely. Yeah. It's cool to, to hear you talk about how you're the first one in your family to do aviation because someone has mm-hmm. to be the first. If you think about it, like there's always the first, but you never know if you're setting up like a, a foundation for your family to come of like a foundation of pilots or a generation of engineers right. or whatever. So someone has to be the first and it's cool how easy it is to access information to figure out how to get into aviation these days because all you do is just go online and two clicks away from signing up, signing your life away with ATP flight school. So, you know, <laughs> it's like there's so many options for you out there to get your ratings and to do everything now. So it's cool that you did that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you mentioned, someone has to be the first and I'm and hopefully I laid some sort of foundation for, you know, if I, if I have kids in the future or even if my, my siblings who I've taken up have kids in the future that they'll, you know, start to, it'll, it'll kind of pique their interest and get them, yep. um, get the ball rolling with them like it got the ball rolling with me. So. For sure, man. That's awesome. So going between, so you took your solo and you did that at your senior year of high school, the fastest ever at the school, by the way. Good mm-hmm. job. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> and then what was the time period between then and when you got your private pilot license? So, so I got my, I, I did those initial, uh, I did my initial training the end of July and beginning of August of 20, I want to say 2014. Um, and that was just after I finished my freshman year of college. And then obviously, you know, I went back to school. Um, so what I did was I, I postponed my training um, back home in Chicago. I went to school in upstate New York. So I was out, I was out there going to school and I decided, Hey, you know, engineering and football is going to be en- engineering and playing football at the same time is going to be you know strenuous enough. I think I'll put it off until I'm on break or something like that. So, um, I put it off and I came back over winter break and it, it was tough, especially in Chicago with, the uh, um, the weather we have there in the yeah. winter and, and whatnot. And I, and I was at, I was at a single runway, uncontrolled field. So crosswinds were a, a, a mess and grounded a lot of flights, but, um, so I'd really just come home and train on, on breaks. So I got about 20 hours that July and August of that first year, I got about 15 to 20 hours, um, Actually, closer to closer to ten hours that winter, and then fifteen to twenty hours the following summer. And I actually got my uh, private pilot's license about a like literally one year after I um, had soloed. But it was all on it was all just over the breaks and times that I wasn't at school. So if I if I if I hadn't been going to school, or let's say I continued my training out in New York while I was doing football and in school, then I totally could have gotten it um, faster than I did. And I, I got it in I think it was like fifty or fifty one hours. Oh, nice. I could have, I, I could have gotten, gotten it in even less time than that if I hadn't, you know, kept, uh, if I hadn't done it just on breaks, if I, if I had kept a string of, you know, successive flights going, I think it would have been a lot quicker and a lot more, um, uh, efficient, but that's just how I kind of had to do it, you know? Yeah. And a lot cheaper too, probably. Cause you don't have to repeat any flights or missing a lot of time. Oh, exactly. Cause every time I came back from, from breaks, I had to go up with an instructor and get checked out and they, to them, to make sure that I was good to fly again before I could get back into any actual lessons yep. um and so that easily easily right there that added probably a good six or seven hours to that 50 or so hour total 
Yeah, no, that's still really good, 50 hours. Cause I know the thank national you. average is like 70 to 80 now, so good job. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm glad I at least cut, cut some of the uh, the time and money off of that yeah. figure for sure. Especially when, uh, I don't know, you don't plan on being like an airline pilot or anything, right? You know, I've I've thought about it. Um, I've, I've kind of weighed some options, you know, very lightly. I haven't delved too deep into anything really, but I've kind of thought, you know, going to – about going to ATP and doing their 100-day program or going to, you know, the Air National Guard and, and seeing what they can do for me. Because obviously, you know, as, as it's been stated so many times before, there's that huge demand for for commercial pilots of all sorts. And, and as, as, the military as well, the Air Force is short some 1,500 or 1,600 pilots, whatever it is. Um, so I think it'd be cool to kind of explore that option. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy where I am um, right now in life. And I'm just going to stick to that and see where it kind of kind of gets me for the time being. Don't get me wrong. I'd definitely rather have a, a cockpit as an office than, than a cubicle, <laughs> you know, as, right. I, as I'm sure, as I'm sure most people listening to this would, but, um, I'm just kind of riding the wave right now and seeing where it, where it takes me. So that's cool, man. Yeah. Cockpit with a, the office with a view and an airplane is pretty remarkable and not much can compete with that. And then, oh no. and then going away, what I was trying to say is if you're not trying to be an airline pilot and it really is advantageous for you to get it done as fast as possible in as little time as mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go the airline pilot route and you need a bunch of hours, it like, and you're still, you got to think of it in a way as you're building your hours. Like if you're not ready for the check ride, don't be afraid to do more lessons. Cause at the end of the day, it's another hour, another two hours you have toward that 1500 or a thousand hours you need. Right. Right. And you always want to make sure you prepare. I mean, that's, that's an obvious, an obvious thing. And the nice thing about aviation, you know, at least compared to school, um, you know, traditional school is that, you know, you can kind of put your test or your check ride when you sort of want, if you're ready, at least if you're going, you know, part 61. Right. Um, yeah. but if you're going, I mean, let's say you're in school and, you know, you have a, you have a, a chemistry two test next week, you know, you can't, you can't put it off. You have to be ready for that right then and there. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, exactly. it's a bit of a different, it's a bit of a different ball game. I mean, at least the way I did it compared to my schooling, but, um, still, I mean, I guess it sort of worked out, uh, nonetheless, you know. Yeah, and it's funny you talked about being a student athlete and uh, you wouldn't want to, because you had engineering, student athlete, and if you had a flying to that, that'd be really hard. I just did student athlete, and then I also just did aviation, but there'd be times mm-hmm. where I would have a flight lesson in the morning and I'd have a practice at 2, and i get to practice like 10 minutes late, but my coach was really cool, and he was like, he just thought it was so cool <laughs> that I was doing aviation, that he was okay that I was doing it, and when I get back, it's like the whole practice had stopped, and they talked to me like, well, it's fine, like, what did you do? It's like, uh oh. <laughs> Can we just finish you know, this practice? Because I got other stuff. Yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Because I can, I can kind of relate to that. And, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't come to practice late. But like, once I had my license, you know, there were some days. There was the day uh, during the week where I didn't have a class, but we'd still have practice. So in the morning, uh, we'd have like a lift, and then I'd, you know, get all my stuff together, have breakfast, then I'd go take, you know, a friend flying. Maybe it was a team. Maybe it was a teammate. And by then, by later in the day, you know, the news had kind of circulated around, like the coaching staff that, hey, I took Johnny so and so up, and they're like, oh, how's your, how's your flight? You got any pictures? Can we see the pictures? You know, so. Um, it, it's cool to kind of see that, you know, even though you don't take some folks up, it's kind of cool to see they're still interested because, you know, everyone flies the airlines. I mean, that's, that's kind of mundane. If, 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 if that's, you know, the right word, we all kind of have the same experience in the airlines for better or worse. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, flying low and slow is something not a lot of people get to do. And I was lucky enough to be able to, you know, fly over our, our football stadium because the campus was relatively close to the airport. And, you know, I'd show them the pictures or I, I think one time I even had a friend try and call my coach from the plane and tell him to, you know, head outside and see if he could see us and wave and stand in midfield and all that stuff. So it's, yeah. it was it was it was kind of a fun, uh, um, a fun situation that I happened into there playing football and getting the whole pile thing done. Yeah, definitely. Uh, at Ohio State where I did where I played football and where I did my training, Ohio State's one of the only schools that actually owns and operates their own airport. So the airport's mm-hmm. not too far from the campus. So. Every once in a while, I would uh, we'd have to crest under Columbus Charlie Airspace to get in the circle of campus and stuff like that. But I go fly right. over the field, and this is after I graduated, and I just kind of watched their practice from like a <laughs> thousand or fifteen hundred feet above, just seeing what oh, they're that's doing. Awesome! <laughs> they probably thought yeah, I was a spy from uh, a local Big Ten school. That's so cool, because that's one thing I, I've I've talked about with some buddies that I never actually got a chance to do. I mean, maybe if I if I head back to school and visit this fall, I could do it, but I never had a chance to see you know, the team actually practicing while they were out there in the field. I think that would have been something really cool to, to see. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's uh, something I'd recommend doing. It's pretty sweet. Yeah, if I can find the time, I'd love to, man. That sounds awesome. Yeah, so let's go back to your training a little bit. So yeah. you, what was the process like going to solo so soon? Like, did you feel ready for it? Were you nervous? Did you think you needed more time? Like, how did that all happen? Uh, You know, I, I, I was nervous, but I didn't feel like I was unprepared or or rushed by any means, but, you know, before, before, uh, maybe the second or third day of flying, I had to fill out an entire 
sort of uh, checkup packet to the, so that like you know the school made sure that I I knew what I was doing before I soloed. I mean that's kind of you know something you obviously have to check off, but they made sure that I got it done you know in a timely manner and and uh, I I had a good amount of ground with my instructors uh, sorry instructor um, and he made sure that I was ready. It's not like I was just being thrown into the fire and sit and they're just you know throwing me off into the wind and saying hey you know good luck you know um, it was all. Uh, pretty regimented and, and even for part 61 it was pretty regimented and they made sure that everything was safe and it was kind of uh, it, it was crazy too the way my the way my solo happened I'm not sure if anyone else has ever had this sort of experience but um, the clouds were you know relatively low it was a marginal sort of VFR day Vis- visibility was good but it was just a low ceiling and um, my instructor was like hey well uh, let's just plan on going up and doing some pattern work today and I was like okay like sounds fine I, just, I still just wanted to you know, get some hours in and uh, after like the second landing with my instructor, we pull over to the side of the ramp, or he he tells me to pull over to the side of the ramp, and I do. And he's like, "Okay, you can." Uh, he's like, "I'm gonna I'm gonna get out here. If you need anything, I'll be on the handheld." And I'm like, "Oh god!" <laughs> You're like, "Wait, what? What do you mean the handheld?" Yeah, I'm Where are like, you going? Here, <laughs> I'm like, "Here we go." Man. And it was it was uh, that was one of the most. You know, I, I, it, was, it was pretty nerve wracking. I'm not gonna lie. Um, and actually the first time I, I came around, uh, to land, cause you know, you need, you need your three, uh, take off and landings to a full stop to, you know, actually qualify as flying for your first solo. Right. So on my first, uh, my first approach coming in, I, you know, I, I don't know if it was high or, or whether I was nervous or I'm sure I was nervous, but I don't know if the nervousness made me, you know, actually execute a go around, but I went around and the instructors calling the handle radio, like, is everything okay? I'm like, yeah, I just, just wanted to. I think I said I just want to calm my nerves or something like that. And I don't know. I don't know if I actually said that. I feel like I did because I, yeah. I was nervous. <laughs> but but uh, I came around again and, and did three landings. It kind of went off without a hitch and got the the whole hose down and, and t-shirt back cut off. And I don't know. But it was it was just kind of weird how it all happened. And, and I get the nature of you know wanting to say or like wanting to get the whole um, jumping out of the plane thing in there because if if, if you tell somebody before a flight that you're going to fly solo it's going to stick with them for the, for that flight, even if the instructor's in the plane, you know? For sure. So, so I'm glad that, that my instructor did it the way he did, because otherwise I would have been way, I would have been overthinking everything else before the solo even, even yeah, happened. You have less time to actually think. And sometimes that's a good thing because you can overthink situations and you can make mistakes. Right. And, and, and I'm glad, I'm glad that, like I said, it, it kind of caught me by surprise, but, it, but, at the time, I was like, what the hell is he doing? Now I'm like, you know what? It kind of makes sense. I'm glad he did it the That's way really he did funny. Yeah, I have a funny story about my solo. So I was at Ohio State. It's a class Delta Airport. My instructor back when I was doing it, like 2010, you could still go up in the tower. So we went up in the tower mm-hmm. so we could watch everything from the tower. And right when he gave me my takeoff clearance, right when I start getting ready to put power in, all of a sudden the guy, the guy that was running the tower, his name's Tony. I'll never forget his name. Mm-hmm. He goes, good luck. We're all watching you. <laughs> and I was like, great, oh, dude. God. Thanks, man. Just uh, make me feel that better. That sounds way more nerve-wracking than Mike's. Yeah, I know. Sure. I was like, come on, man. <laughs> Why would you And the thing that? is, you, you don't know how many people are up there watching, so yeah. that makes it even, even, yeah. even worse. <laughs> definitely, yeah, I know. It was, it was definitely nerve-wracking, but it was cool. It was an awesome experience. There's nothing to like landing on an airplane on the ground by yourself and completing your first solo. Oh yeah. The first solo. I mean, the, the feeling you get afterwards, I mean, my legs were shaken, but I was like, man, you know, I did it. And I'm sure, I'm sure anyone who's soloed for the first time, um, can, can relate because it's a very freeing experience. It's like, Hey, you know, you're, you're kind of on your way, you're getting it and you're that much closer to, you know, being a, being a private pilot. Yeah, no, it's definitely really cool. And it's a great experience. And it's cool that a lot of schools kind of, will hose you down or cut off the back of your shirt and stuff like that so it's awesome right right yeah the whole ceremony thing was pretty cool it wasn't the best day for it it was kind of cold and i was <laughs> wet and i didn't yeah. like it too much but but you know looking back it was a really cool really cool experience yeah so tell me a little more about your training so after your solo i know that you said you took a couple of days off you took like a couple of months off and you had to kind of pick your way through the training what was the hardest part of training for you was it just the studying was it the flying was it the maneuvers what re- did anything really like hold you back at all you know, the hardest part of training for me might have been as as routine as it might sound now. It was actually, I think it was crosswinds. Yeah. And it sounds it sounds kind of ironic because the, the field that we were based out of was a single runway, you know, north south airport or single north south runway airport. And in Chicago, the winds typically blow more so out of the out of the west. So there were a lot of days when we, when I would deal with direct crosswinds. But there was one day in particular. Um, it was over the winter after I'd taken a few months off and I had done a few flights with my instructor already. But it was getting one of my um, long cross countries out of the way. And, uh, I had maybe 25 or, or 30 hours at the time, nothing, 
nothing special, you know. And before every flight, as I'm sure it is in most flight schools, you have to get signed off by the instructor to make sure the weather is within your minimums and, and to make sure that uh, the, your destination airports are like below your minimums or yeah, meet your minimums. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I took off and, and the TAF looked great. The, the sign off, you know, it, it, it was, everything was within limits. Everything was okay, okay to go. And I took off, I think it was like a crosswind of maybe three knots from my own airport. And I was like, okay, that's fine. I get to the airport I'm flying to head crossing runways and landing there wasn't an issue at all. And then, um, I'm flying back and maybe 20 miles out. I tuned the ATIS, um, for the airport next to ours, which is pretty close. We didn't have our own. So I tuned the one that was next to it. And it said like direct crosswind, uh, like 12 gusting 16. And my, my crosswind limit was like, I think it was like 13. I'm like, Oh God, like, here we go. <laughs> yeah. This is going to be an adventure. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I say to myself, you know, hey, I, I know people have landed at that airport that's close by before. It's non-controlled, has crossing runways. It could be fine. Um, but I was like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot and see what I can do because I, you know, I didn't know how accurate that reporting station would be for our home field, you know, right? Um, since it was uh, a few miles away. But I, I go in for my first landing and I, uh, I remember hitting the, the downwind wheel um, – pretty firmly and I bounced right back up. I'm like, Oh God, I gave it power, went around. And then while I'm in the pattern on down and I'm telling myself, Hey, you know, if I, if I don't get this one, I'll head to the, to the field next door. I'll call them and say, Hey, you know, it was above my minimums. Um, can you come and get me, et cetera, we'll bring the plane back, whatever. And then, uh, that second landing, you know, I bounced and I, I bounced pretty good, but, I, but my airspeed was bleeding off, you know, I could hear the stall horn. So it came down and afterwards, you know, the, the, the woman at the desk was like, Hey, you know, you might not have wanted to do that. I'm like, yeah, you know, you're, you're probably right. That was a pretty dumb decision in my book. And you know what? It was looking back. I totally st- should have taken the, the route out of there and gone to the, to the airport next door. And, um, but it was the whole thing. Uh, it, I guess that was the first time I really had that, like get there. itis. And yeah. I was on a training flight. You know what I mean? So looking back, I was so, I was so stupid. Did I get the job done? Yeah. But like, it could have been so much, you know, safer, and I could have such a, a greater margin for, for error, I guess you could say, if I'd gone to the airport next door and played it safe and, and uh, not yeah. gone above my my limits. And gosh, being a young pilot looking back, it's just like, what was I thinking, you know? <laughs> yeah, if you could, ever, yeah. No, I understand that now that I have like twenty three hundred hours and I've flown a lot, done a lot of landings, had a lot of interesting approaches. I'm willing to pretty much try anything now because I know what I can handle, what the plane can handle, and I know kind of I kind of have an understanding of what's okay to go into. And so now I'll right. try anything and I'll go around and go land somewhere else. But when you only have like 20 to 30 hours, you don't have those experiences. You don't have those kind of life lessons of you, like there's more surprises that could happen and you don't know how you're going to respond to those surprises. So when you're younger and when you don't have as many, not even younger, we don't have as many hours, it might be best to take the mm-hmm. safer way out and not really try it. But when you have mm-hmm. a, when you're flying a 135 freight, a lot of times you don't have that opportunity and it's kind of like, well, try it, then try again and try right. again. And if it doesn't work, then do something else. <laughs> right. And I'm sure, I'm sure the get there itis is much, is, is gotta be worse for, you know, guys who are in your field. I'm not saying you specifically, but the guys who are flying the part 135s and are getting paid that money to, to take freight from point A to point B as opposed to, you know, a student. Um, I'm sure it's a totally different ball game, ball game for you guys. But even like looking back, it's like, I was a student. I was just on a training flight. I could have landed anywhere I wanted, but as long as I was safe, they, they would be okay. You know, I, I chose to risk it. And looking back, that was probably one of the, the dumber decisions I made in my training. But you know what? Like any decision you make in life, especially any poor decision you make in life, um, you learn from it. And I'm glad that I did because now I have that sort of sort of perspective. I'm sure you can relate just as well. For sure. Yeah. And then not only you learn from it, but since you're telling us on this platform, other people can learn from the same mistakes that you made before. So you're helping other people kind of have a mentality of what to expect. Right. Yeah. Don't 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 have to get there right it's like I did, especially as a student. I mean, if you're if you're if you're a pilot and you're getting you're getting paid to do it, maybe maybe then I can understand it. But if you're a student, I, I definitely don't understand where you're coming from with the get there right So yeah, take a t- t- take a note out of my out of my playbook and don't do that. That's awesome. No, yeah, get there itis, macho. All those are factors that you need to watch out for because they're real yeah. and they'll sneak up on you too. You won't know that you have it until afterwards. Yeah, definitely not not situations you want you want to throw yourself into by any means. Yeah, and the weather can change, like you said. Like everything was projecting to be fine, and you never know what could happen. Even today, when I'm, I'm flying freight out in Nebraska right now, and I flew from mm-hmm. Omaha to Hastings, Nebraska, everything was projecting to be clear. 
Everything was mm-hmm. fine. There's a lot of storms to the north. But when I got like 30 miles away from Hastings or when I got whatever within range for the ATIS, I started listening to the weather and the ceiling was 100 feet and uh-huh. the visibility was one. And I was like, well, that's not going to work because legally yeah. <laughs> I'm not allowed to shoot an approach that's under the approach minimums for that airport. And they right. only had RNAV approaches, which the minimums were down to 300 feet. So I needed 200 feet to go and I needed the visibility to climb to, to two. So I needed oh, two yeah. and 300. And as I got closer, the visibility went up. So the visibility went to two. And then as I'm flying over the airport, the visibility or the, the ceiling is still at 200. So I still need another 100 feet. So I'm just going to uh, fly yeah. around. And then I call ATC. I was like, hey, this isn't going to work. Let me go to my alternate, which is Grand Island. So I start flying to Grand Island. And then I tune to the, the weather one more time. And the weather reports that it's able, or that I'm able to shoot the minimum. I'm able to shoot the approach, and it's at my minimum. So I was like, "Hey, I'm asking you for another favor. I actually <laughs> want to go back now and shoot the approach." And then I just shot approach down to minimums today. So it was fun stuff. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I, I know Hastings isn't exactly a place you want to get you know stuck in, or maybe Grand Island's not a place you want to get stuck in either. But no. I'm glad you. I'm, I'm glad you made it. So. Yeah, no, yeah, it's a it's a lot of <laughs> everything keeps you on your toes in this business and flying. And if, if you fly for long enough, you'll have some instances where the weather just does different things, and there's no way to really predict the weather. Oh yeah, and you know I'm a person who, um, you know, t- typically I hate change. I love being in a routine. I love I love knowing what I'm going to be doing every day and aviation forces you to totally go against that, which I guess is, is, is helped me. And it's kind of helped me adapt to that, um, aspect of change that I've kind of been missing in my life and aviation sort of, um, especially the weather. I mean, the weather for sure is, has helped me adapt to that. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of glad it has because it's added a whole a sort of different element to, to my life. Yeah, no, for sure. It's, uh, aviation's all about diversity and how you handle diversity and that can flow to other parts of your life as well. Exactly. So cool. So we talked about kind of that solo and that was kind of the crossroad of something you struggled with. And then after that, you had probably another about 20 hours before you took your check ride. What was preparing for your private pilot check ride like? What kind of resources did you use? Did you just do ground lessons with your instructor? Or did you reach out on YouTube and watch videos? What all did you do? It's, it's funny you mentioned YouTube because I actually went on and I forget what video it was, but it was a full a full oral portion of the check ride. And I was like, okay, if I can have these questions down, I'll be good. And I also got um, uh, a gouge of, of questions from my, my flight school about all the questions that would pretty much be asked on the check ride. Um, and that gouge sort of stuck to what the instructor asked me and same with the YouTube video. Um, and then leading up to my, leading up to my, uh, my check ride, I actually went up with my instructor a couple times and I think it might've been the flight, literally the flight before my, my check ride, we were going up just to, you know, make sure I was good with my power on stalls make sure I was good with um, the maneuvers I had to do. I think I was going to do turns around a point. Um, and uh, for some reason, I was just all over the place with my power on stalls. And this was like two days before my check ride. Like I almost put it into a spin and, and my instructor's like, are you okay? I'm like, you know what? I, <laughs> I might just be in a funk. I have no idea. But then, I mean, that was like li- literally the spit, like the, the stall after I had almost spun it, like the next two were like spot on perfect. He's like, okay, I think it might've just been nerves and, and all that. And it was, um, I don't know. In that respect, it was, I, th- I think it went pretty smoothly. I felt, I felt pretty well prepared and I had the resources for my flight school, but I also found my own resources, which kind of supplemented what they gave me and, and really helped me out. And then as far as my, my actual check ride goes, um, you know, the oral took about an hour and a half. Everything was pretty straightforward and typical, like what I had studied. And then, um, the flight portion, the maneuvers went fine. The stalls went fine. Um, and then I get, we, we go to do some, some short and soft field landings and it's like a 2,800 foot strip. So you, have, you really have to kind of slam it in there. And it was a hot day too. It was like, it might've, it might've been 90 degrees in Chicago that day. Oh, wow. So, I mean, so performance is going to be lacking because of the dens- density altitude as well, you know? So, um, the first one we, we came in to do was, was supposed to be a short field. We were going to do a short field and a soft field, both of the same, uh, airport. So we come in for the, the, the short field landing and, I floated a little long. It wasn't too long, but it was just past that, you know, I think it's 200 feet that they give you, like a 200 foot target that they give you on the check ride. Um, and I floated, but I, but I landed like soft as a feather in my DP. He's like, all right, well, you know, it wasn't exactly a short field, but I'll give you the soft field since you touched down so smoothly. And I was like, okay, oh, thank God. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, okay, that's, a, that's, that's my free, my sort of free pass for the day. I kind of lucked out there. Yeah. Um, and then we taxi back, took off and, and I nailed this, the short field that time. And, um, so that was that was really the only sort of hiccup I hit in that whole that and, and the power on stalls the day or two before my check ride were the only real hiccups I think 
I think that I hit. But even still, that second sort of hiccup ended up not even costing me, which I was so thankful for because I didn't want to drop another whatever it was like a three hundred dollar you know rescheduling fee. It's not cheap with a with no, a DPE. No, it's not cheap at all. Um, so I was thankful that she was you know forgiving enough to say, hey, you know, that was a pretty textbook soft field. Now show me the 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 short field. Yeah. You know? And DPEs, I mean, there might be a handful out there that aren't the best or don't really want to help you out. But I think in general, DPEs want to make sure like they know if you're a good pilot or not. They, they know that you're nervous. They know that you really don't know what to expect. So if you just kind of show a certain type of airmanship, they're going to be willing to work with you. Right. I mean, you mentioned showing airmanship. That was literally, I think that was the last step on my check ride. Like that was the last thing we had to do all day was, was hit a short and a soft. And then we would fly back to the home airport and we'd be done. So I think that everything I had shown her up until that point kind of gave her confidence that, you know, I knew what I was doing, but I just kind of, you know, let it float a little too long, carry, carried a little too much airspeed on final, whatever, yep. whatever the case was. But I think she she kind of knew from what she had already seen in the hour and a half that we had been up in the flight that I was that I was okay. You know? Yeah, she she knew that you're still what a 51 hour pilot and you're not going to be perfect at everything. So she gave you another chance, which is what they should exactly. Do. Yeah, right. I totally agree with you there, man. Yeah. So after you're done with your check ride, did you think your private pilot check ride was as hard as you thought it was going to be, or was it a little easier than you thought it was going to be? You know, I think it was. I think it was probably on par with what I was expecting. Um, and I only say that because I had such great uh, preparation leading up to it. So before you go on your check ride, you actually have to go up with your primary instructor on a mock check ride. Then you go up with the the chief instructor of the school on a mock check ride and mock oral. And then you maybe do another flight or two before the actual check ride. And then you go on the check ride. So it's it's there's there's sort of four. Um, four steps and those first three steps really help you with the preparation you're the, like i said before with the whole solo thing you're not just being thrown into the fire they make sure you know what you're doing before you kind of kind of dip your feet in that pool um, and go up with the dpe and before you get totally submerged by the dpe right yeah <laughs> you so know what i mean there's little surprises that can be thrown at you which i like that i like that approach i know that some schools do that other schools just kind of you know, part 61 schools might just have one sign off and you're good to go but it's good to have right. kind of like a a set regimented path and kind of like multiple check rides to prepare you for that one check ride. Right. And I, like I said before, the route I took was part 61, um, where they could have easily done, you know, whatever they wanted before they threw me into the plane with the DPE. But I'm glad that, you know, they had the wherewithal to know um, what level of preparation these students needed before they go up. And I'm glad that they took the route that they did with me for sure. Definitely. So cool. So you are a private pilot now. Do you have any mm-hmm. plans to get your instrument or your commercial? I know we talked earlier about how you still kind of have in the back of your mind of being an airline pilot, but say you don't become an airline pilot, do you still want to further your piloting career or do you think you're going to stop at a private? Uh, you know, I've, I've thought about it and I've, for the time being with the with the position I'm in, I've kind of told myself that any additional schooling or training I do, whether it's for a master's for my job or for, um, you know, actually going for that commercial rating, I've told myself that I'm only going to like spend more money on it if I'm going to go all out. Yeah. You know what I mean? So have I thought about getting instrument rating? Yes. But for the time, for the time being, I think I'm just going to stick with flying uh, private and doing VFR until I can kind of convince myself otherwise financially or, or mentally that I, that I should get the instrument and um, become a little more proficient. And trust me, I know the instrument's crazy valuable. I know it's uh, a great skill to have, but uh, the, but the kind of flying I do right now, you know, just taking family and friends up sightseeing or flying for that hundred dollar hamburger breakfast or whatever. I don't really see it. <laughs> You know, I don't, I don't really see a need for it with the flying that I'm currently doing. Yeah, so. no, there's definitely, I mean, instrument flying is just such a great skill to have. And it's something that pretty much every pilot should have if they can. But at the end of the day, it comes down to what suits you as a pilot and what your needs are. And from the talking to you and how you explain it, it's like, like you said, you just go fly on nice days anyway. Like you're not going to go fly on a bad day. So exactly, that's, you probably don't need it. But other people who fly a lot but only have their private pilot license do a lot of long cross countries might kind of get themselves in trouble and they would probably need that more than, say, just taking your family up or a sightseeing flight. So you're not an airline pilot and you're not going through the training to be an airline pilot, but you're still in aviation and you mm-hmm. went to school to be an engineer and you went to school to specifically be an aeronautical engineer, right? Correct. Cool. So what all, what all entails is like what does an aeronautical engineer actually do? So at, at least in my line of work, what I'm doing is I'm making sure that um, different aspects of uh, certain uh, newly produced jets meet um, FAA regulations. So any takeoff or landing or, or, or braking um, criteria that you can think of, um, that falls onto my 
uh, mine and my coworkers and my, and my group are our hands. Um, but at the same time, you know, I have friends, I have a friend who's working with uh, a, a missile system. I have a friend who's working on jet engine consulting. I have another friend working on nuclear subs as an aeronautical engineer, or sorry, mechanical engineer, pretty closely related. Um, and then I have another friend who's working, um, I think he actually got his, he got his A and P, but he's still working with, with, uh, jet engines. So even if you're, I mean, let's say you're an aeronautical engineer, you don't get hired directly into the aeronautical field. I mean, it's so closely re- related to the mechanical engineering field that you can almost go, um, into most aspects of mechanical engineering and be totally fine. Um, but like at the same time, there are other engineers in, in my company who work with, um, noise, uh, requirements around airports and how much air, a noise an airplane will create. They'll, they'll work with, um, the stability and control of an aircraft. They'll work with the propulsion. They'll work with, um, sales, um, so it's really, it's really kind of broad, especially, I mean, if, let's say you get into a, a big aviation company, the doors are totally open to whatever you can do as an aeronautical engineer. It's, 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 it's almost like once you, once you get in, the, the, the doors are wide open, but getting in is a little harder because there aren't a whole lot of, um, aviation companies in, um, uh, in America. I mean, you know, you think of, uh, Lockheed, Northrop, Boeing, Textron, um, I mean, there's probably just, a, just only a, a handful, but then you think if you're a business major and you're like in financial services, I mean, there's tons of financial services companies. You can do that. You can do that anywhere. So it's it's really sort of a niche. But once you get into that niche, you're kind of set. Yeah, for sure. No, that's what it seems like. And it's kind of similar to aviation. It's like once you get into the niche of aviation, like you meet people, you kind of create your own name for yourself and you can kind of do what you want to do with it. And I think that's kind of what it's similar with what you're talking about with being an aeronautical engineer. Exactly. That's That's totally spot on. So cool. Yeah. So what all does it take to be an aeronautical engineer? Like if someone came up to you today and was like, Hey, I really want to be an aeronautical engineer. Like, do they need to be good with math? They need to be good with science. They need to be good. What do they need to really like focus on in high school or even in college? And what's a good path for them to go? You know, to be, to be an aeronautical engineer specifically, I don't think you need to be particularly good at, um, science. It's a lot more of, of, uh, math, at least in my opinion. Um, like, for example, I mean, chemistry was a requirement for my degree, but I knew I sucked at chemistry. I knew I dreaded chemistry. Um, so what I did was I just took it over the summer at a community college back home, you know, kind of got ahead and also got that class out of the way at the same time. Because honestly, taking the class at the community college, it was almost easier than high school compared to taking it at my engineering school. Um, and that's really smart. I mean, taking taking all the classes you can at the community college over the summer to kind of supplement your degree, that's a really smart way to go about things. Um, but... It's not as much science related as I thought it would be. It was more math and, and plugging in equations. And, and um, the only time I can really think of where science came into play would have been like one of the like a few wind tunnel experiments we did my my junior year, because um, that was really the only practical like hands on um, application of, of the sciences that I had had up until that point. And even still, the rest of the way for my junior or senior year, it was mostly coding. It was mostly um, mostly a lot of math. I mean, one thing I didn't see being a factor going into my degree was getting um, some coding under my belt, which I really wish I, I had, um, going into the, uh, sorry, going into my junior or senior year. Cause that was a lot of, uh, code heavy semesters for me in there. And, I, and one thing, one piece of advice I give to guys, if you're starting off, let's say you're in high school, if you're early on in college, I mean, get into coding. I know for, for my major, um, we had to take like a one credit, like basics of MATLAB course, but my friend and I decided to take the full on, computer science one, which taught us a little more about the coding and, and, um, and, and how to, how to work around, how, how to get your mind sort of more geared towards coding. Cause a four credit course is going to be much more comprehensive than just a one credit course, you know? Um, but that's one thing I, I really recommend is take, do, like do all the coding you can. I know starting off, it's going to suck. It's, it's not going to be easy. You have to kind of get your mind around how the, the, the language of whatever coding language you're using works. But once you know and once your brain has that sort of coding mindset, you'll be much better off um, as, as an aeronautical engineer, especially now. I mean, nowadays, everything revolves around or a lot of things revolve around uh, MATLAB, which is a great coding language. But it all, there's a lot of coding involved that goes into um, computational fluid dynamics as well, CFD. Um, so, I mean, like you said, math and science, I'd, I'd change it to more math. Math and coding is what more the emphasis is on, especially especially the coding part. And then do most aeronautical engineers, do they get like hands-on experience with the actual airplanes? Are they dealing with the airplanes? Or are they more kind of behind the scenes on a computer? Uh, you know what? I, I'd say it's mostly, I'd say it's mostly being behind the computer, unfortunately. Um, unless you get hired into a position where you're working with, 
let's say you're working with like integrating something into a flight deck and you're in like a simulator or you're working with um, a wind tunnel or you're working on like a structural, some sort of structural testing uh, chamber. Um, uh, yeah, honestly, it's mostly behind the computer. I mean, I know for one of the aspects of my job, it's like um, last summer I had to calculate, you know, there was a new engine rating that was going to be put on a new jet that was coming out. And I had to make sure that, you know, the engine uh, that was being put on it was still able to perform like the other engines that had come before it and still meet all the FAA specs and all that jazz. And what I did to mostly make sure of that was I had to go into um, like the company's proprietary or the company's like coding language and make sure that the engine tables are swapped out, make sure that the different drag characteristics of like the engine nacelle itself are swapped out. And I had to make sure that it was still able to um, perform like the old one, but I, I did it all via code and analyzing plots and analyzing graphs that that code spit out. So um, unfortunately, it's most of it's behind the computer, but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, let's say you're fortunate enough to live or like work near like a factory or something like that. That doesn't mean you still can't go out to the factory and look at everything and kind of walk around and ask, right. ask the assembly guys questions, you know, because if you want like a full understanding, you got to get out from behind the desk, man. For sure. Um, you you got to be able to, to have a full comprehensive knowledge of what you're sort of working with. And if you have the opportunity to actually get that hands-on experience, I mean, take it for sure. For sure. And it's cool to hear kind of your story about how how you started with aviation and how it's kind of flight simulator was your thing. And then eventually realized, Hey, I can actually fly. And you started flying and then you applied that to loving aviation. And you're like, Hey, well, I like math and I like, and I think coding's pretty cool. So why not do aeronautical engineering and look where it's mm-hmm. got you now. And there's so many different jobs and just being a pilot in aviation. There's ATC, there's an engineering, there's dispatch, there's just so many things that you can do. And it's really cool to see how the true aviation kind of community expands so much farther than just being a pilot and everyone loves pretty much everything aviation because i mean pilots love engines they 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 love the stuff that you guys do to make our planes safer Mm -hmm. to make them faster to make them more fuel efficient all that kind of stuff so it's really cool to see just a different kind of industries already get into but still be involved in the aviation community right and i know you mentioned all the different types of jobs that go you know into an airline or the operations of it you know people only really think of Pilots, gate agents, ticket people at the front counter, flight attendants, and like air traffic controllers. That's only five jobs, but there's an infinite, I mean, I don't want to say infinite, but there's a huge number of of positions that are an airline, like at an airline that people don't even think, like come close to thinking about. And it's, it's, it's a shame because if you, if you love aviation, let's say you have like, let's say you have an art degree or like a communications degree or something like that, and you can't exactly work as a pilot or, or a flight attendant or what have you, you can easily get involved in, you know, dispatch, like you said, flight planning. I mean, I'm sure that wouldn't be too much of an issue with a little more training, but maybe, I don't know if I'm speaking out of turn or not, but I mean, like you said, the, there's, the doors are open. There's just so many more opportunities than people think of. No, oh, there's so many more opportunities. I mean, every airline is just like a big business. It needs every, just the same jobs that everyone else does. And the cool thing about working for an airline is you get flight benefits. So exactly. <laughs> why not yeah. do it? So it's pretty cool. Oh, so yeah. yeah, there's so many things you can do. If you're listening to this, you love aviation, but maybe you medically can't be a pilot and you still want to be around it. There's other things you can do to pursue your dream. And you, you mentioned the whole medical thing. That's that's one thing I definitely recommend to anyone who's ever who's getting involved in, whether it be your third class medical or or whatever it is to get your private, or you're getting your first class to you know be a a, a military pilot or a commercial pilot, whatever whatever it may be. Make sure that your medical is cleared up before you can actually go forward with any of that training. Because if you go forward with the training and go to like get your check rider or, or whatever it is, and your medical doesn't meet the standards, I mean then you're that just kind of that's that's gonna be such a downer. I mean you want to make sure you're okay medically going into it like before anything else you know definitely don't spend a fortune on your training and get ready and then take figure out that you can't become an airline pilot find out beforehand there's nothing wrong with spending a little bit extra money and getting a first class medical for your first one and truly seeing that this is something you can do because you'd rather catch the medical issue earlier before you spend 10 grand or whatever you can spend up to like 250 grand on training now that'd be a, a big downer <laughs> yeah definitely a huge a huge downer because there's sure. no refunds on that no great great experience don't get me wrong but there's yeah. I mean, if you can't if you if you can't apply that experience um then man just kind of i don't know it's just got to be so disheartening and so disappointing definitely all right, Jim, I like to do this section called the rapid fire section, and it's just a couple of questions that are just you answer the first thing that comes to your mind. Does that sound all right? Cool. Let's do it. All right. What's your favorite airplane? Oh, favorite airplane, you know, in terms of GA, I'd say a Cessna T206. In terms of commercial, I'd definitely say the 757. What's your favorite airport? 
Favorite airport's Midway, Chicago for sure. Favorite aviation Instagram account to follow. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say uh, I am the drizzle, stabilizer motion, and um, flight chops. Yeah, because, those are all good. I mean, because you know the drizzle and and stabilizer motion both kind of keep it real, and they're both kind of. I don't want to say hip with us younger guys, but but they get they they get the whole meme culture and and they kind of satirize aviation, which I like because you know everyone just kind of makes it seem like it's it's this glorious profession. Right. And don't get me wrong, there are moments of the glory, but I mean they keep it real. You know yeah, what I they mean? do. Um, this, uh, and then, oh, keep going. No, no, go for it. Go for it. Oh, I'll just add it in at the end of it. Okay. Well, I was gonna say you know flight chops. You know he's he's got a great perspective on the on the GA side of things and. Even still, I mean, there are some awesome YouTube accounts that I love to follow too. There's, you know, Captain Moonbeam, uh, Matt Goothmiller, who's also a GA guy, Mr. Aviation 101, Steve O. Um, so honestly, if, if you were to ask me who I follow, I'd say I follow more of the YouTube community, honestly, than, yeah. than Instagram. But that's just my, you know, personal preference. Yeah, no, definitely. The YouTube community is definitely a big one as well. And like you mentioned, uh, the drizzle and stabilizer motion, those, those two are so funny and I'm so glad that I found them and they've helped me in this podcast kind of grow and I owe a lot to them. So I, I would definitely recommend anyone follow them. Absolutely. I, I endorse that a hundred percent. Would you prefer long trips or short trips? Uh, if I'm, if I'm in a commercial jet, I'd say, I'd say long trips. If I'm in a Cessna, I want to say short trips. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. All right. Here's one. Would you rather fly over cities, mountains, country or beach? Oh, cities. I, I've flown the Chicago skyline so many times and it never gets, it never gets old. Yeah, I would agree. Sometimes we do trips to Gary, Indiana and on a nice clear day, oh, you can yeah. just see the skyline so well over the lake and it is unbelievable. Yeah, man, it's beautiful. I mean, the Sears tower is at, what? 17 or 1800 feet above, above sea or sorry, above ground level. Yeah. So if you're fly, so if Midway gives you a clearance to fly along the lakeshore at 2000 or below, I mean, you're, you're below the Sears tower no matter what. It's yeah, such it's a pretty cool, cool cool experience yeah, yeah it's like it's a cool city and a cool skyline it's fun to fly over and especially at night totally agreed totally agreed yeah all right what's a fl- what's a plane you've always wanted to fly plane i've always wanted to fly i'm gonna go back to the to the t206 i think it's a pretty sleek i mean it's all it is is a it has a higher horsepower engine and two more seats than my the 1792 i fly is currently i fly currently does but in my mind that's like the best part about it because it's accessible and i don't need that much more training you know right um and it's it's kind of a I don't want to say it's a it's a really a, a true bush plane, but it has the ability to carry quite a few quite a few pounds, quite a few people. So that's one reason why that's why I'd love to fly that sometime soon. Definitely. All right. Do you like Piper or Cessna better? Uh, I only really have experience in Cessna, so and I swear by the high wing. So I'm gonna go <laughs> Cessna. There you go. What's your favorite airline livery? Oh wow, this is a new one, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I asked oh, them, I asked for some new ones, and I got some good ones. Wow. I, you know, I love the Alaska Airlines livery, uh, honoring those who serve. I think that's what it says on the side. Yeah. But it's like a red, white, and blue livery. It's awesome. It's got like the stars and stripes on the, on the, uh, the scimitar winglets and it just looks awesome. Oh, so that's yeah, one, no. that, that's what, that's one that I definitely love. That's a cool one. Here's one. Uh, something you wish you knew before you became a pilot. Wow. Something I wish I knew that air traffic control isn't as scary as the, the <laughs> news, as, as the news makes it out to be. <laughs> That's definitely a good point. They're, they're there to help you more than anything else. Absolutely. I'm glad I learned that early on too. Yep. Don't be afraid to talk to them. Never. All right. Here's one. Who in the industry would you like to meet? Wow. Yeah, man. They weren't Gosh. joking when they came up with these questions. Yeah. Right? <laughs> these are great questions. I, I feel like, you know, I, I really want to say Bob Hoover. I mean, yeah. rest in peace, because he was a legend. Yeah, he was. Um, same thing with like Chuck Yeager. But if I were to go like current day, man, I might say whoever whoever flies Air Force One. I think yeah. that'd be such a cool experience to talk. To. I, I I couldn't tell you the name obviously, but it'd be so cool to talk to whoever has gone through those experiences of flying the presidents around on such a cool aircraft. I would agree. Yeah, that'd be really cool. Every time we fly near Washington and we fly all over the country. And every once in a while, we'll hear the controller be like, Air Force One, do this. I'm like, wait, what? Air Force One? Where? <laughs> it's like, how close can I get to Air Force One before you shoot me down? Because <laughs> I want to see Yeah. It. <laughs> oh, that'd be so cool to see, yeah. it, man, for sure. It would be cool. No, that'd be cool to talk to an Air Force One pilot. If any Air Force One pilots are listening to this, uh, let me know. I'd love to interview you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let, let me know, too. I'd love yeah. to meet you. There Jeez. you go. All right. What's your favorite thing about aviation? You know, when I when I started flying, I thought it would be – flying fast and high and whatever else that comes with, you know, the commercial travel. But, you know, the more I, the more I've flown and the more I've flown with all these people that I've flown with, it's, um, you know, taking somebody up for the first time or their first time in a small plane and seeing their reaction and getting to show them a whole different 
perspective than what they're typically used to if they fly um, commercial. I just found it's much more, um, I don't know, personally gratifying. I think my account's up to like 60 some friends now or something like that. And you said 60? Yeah, six zero in wow. like in like two in like two years of flying. That's incredible. So, yeah, thanks, man. I, I was fortunate enough to have a, a pretty high powered one seventy two with a nice takeoff weight, so <laughs> right. I was able to fit. I, I could so I could fit three people at a time and, and make it easy on myself. That's you know? awesome. Yeah, um, that's really cool. But yeah, but but definitely sharing it has been uh, the most rewarding and definitely my favorite part of it for sure. No, it's cool taking your friends up when they go fly because I mean. A lot of some, if you're not in aviation, your definition of a small airplane is much different than someone that's learning how to fly. Your oh, definition absolutely. of a small airplane is like a 737 and my definition of a small plane is like a, a sport pilot plane. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of fun to hear their answers, especially someone who's not involved in aviation. Like what's your, like where of a, like what's the smallest plane you've been on? Oh, like a, a regional jet. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. this is a little smaller. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're going to be touching elbows the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. Well, cool, man. Those are all the rapid-fire questions I have for you, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on this podcast. I think kind of your story can help a lot of people. Just realize that you don't have to be a pilot to be included in the aviation community. You can still love aviation. You can still pursue aviation, even if you're not going to become an airline pilot, corporate pilot, whatever. There's so many opportunities for you to work. I would encourage you just to, to go to an airline and look at how the jobs that they have and the jobs that you can do or just research jobs in aviation and you can see what you can get yourself into. Absolutely. And you know, one thing that I, I sort of uh, realized when I got, when I was in my training and all that was, and this is for all those people who are like in high school or college and they're not sure if they actually want to get their license or not, or, or if they want to go forward with the whole pilot career or not. But one, one thing I realized is that, um, you know, I can be an engineer and I can be a pilot on the side. I can't be a pilot and, and be an engineer on the side. You know what I mean? It's so, so I'm, while, um, well, maybe I would like to be a commercial pilot. Maybe that, maybe that'd be like the better or like my dream career choice, I guess you could say. I'm, I'm glad it works out the way it, or I'm glad it worked out the way it did because I can fit both, um, aspects of each sort of profession into my, of my life. Definitely. Yeah. You, it's like you said, you can be an airline pilot and you can, like have a hobby, but you can't necessarily have another full-time job. It is a little bit exactly. difficult. Being an airline pilot, you do have a, like you have, you're busy, but you also have weird schedules and different days off and you're able to do a <laughs> lot of things, but you're not consistently able to show up to anything. If that makes right, any you, sense. Right. You can't, you can't do a typical nine to five Monday through Friday and expect to be, you know, valuable to the company over time. Yeah. And expect to keep your job. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's yeah. most important part, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, cool, man. I really do appreciate you coming on this podcast and, uh, one other thing before you go is tell everyone where they can find you on Instagram in case they want to follow up with you, ask you any questions, or just check out your page. Yeah, for sure. My my page is uh, the it's the Jimmer at the Jimmer, and Jimmer is spelled J I M M three R. So cool. <laughs> thanks, That's awesome, man. man. Yeah. Well, cool. I, like I said, thanks for coming on the show, and I hope you wish the best in your career. And if you ever decide to continue your training, reach out to me or just let me know how uh, everything plays out, man. Will do. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me, Justin. I really appreciate it. No problem, man. Have a great day. You too. And that is a wrap of episode number 27. Aviation, thank you guys so much for taking the time out of your day to listen to this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, help me out by sharing it with all your friends, whether it's a flight school, whether it's your college, whether it's just friends you want to get into aviation, let them know at the podcast, go to our website and hit the share button and you can share it on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, any of your favorite social media platforms. If you want to let me know that you love the podcast, send me an email pilotthepilothq at gmail.com and if you have someone to know that you want to get on the podcast go ahead and send them a message let them know that you want to hear their story on the podcast or message me and i'll get the word out to them aviation have a great day and happy flying